hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 95. O come, and let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on, the, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, I know that I picked up on this because I've been studying the psalm all week, right? But uh, you may have, if you're, if you're keeping the context and the foundation of Psalm 121 that we looked at last week in mind, you may have noticed, at least in some regards, that our psalm today, and this is part of, part of the reason why it's in the lectionary this way, our psalm today actually builds upon that foundation that we laid last week in Psalm 121. And so as we come now to Psalm 95, we come to it from a posture of rest and dependence upon Yahweh, who is, as we read last week, our keeper and our defender. And so then, so then out of that posture, uh, that, that posture of rest and dependence, let's just continue approaching these psalms for the rest of Lent, 95 today, 23 next week, and 130 the week after that. Let's approach them in that same manner that we started last week with this, this theme of Lectio Divina, or divine reading, where we are seeking to not only meditate upon the psalm, but to live in the scriptures. And so, similar to last week, notice that once again, as we read through the psalm, that the psalmist utilizes purposeful repetition to draw our eyes as we read it, our ears and hearts as we hear it, and our minds as we attempt to understand it and discern it. He's utilizing this purposeful repetition to draw our attention to particular spiritual truths that are contained and inspired within this psalm. So just looking at the first half of the psalm, I won't reread through the whole thing again, but looking at the first half of the psalm, so in your bulletin, it's actually the entirety of the stuff on that page at the bottom, as well as about the first sentence and a half on the next page. This is the first half of the psalm. There's a break right there before the line, today if you hear his voice. So just in that first half of the psalm, as we read, you may have noticed that the psalmist consistently repeats this phrase, either let us come or come let us. And he does so six times through this psalm. We sang the psalm a minute ago uh, as Connor led us and the team led us in worship. But notice how this repetition, what it does is it immediately draws our attention to a communal focus within the psalm. And this communal focus then influences the rest of the psalm, and it does so in two particular ways. You notice first that 
in this first half, there, this let us, this communal focus calls the whole community to gather together for the purpose of praise and of worship of Yahweh. And so within this term of, oh, come, let us, or let us come, there is, a, there is an invitation for each individual person as well as each individual family unit to gather with the whole community of God, reminding us that our faith is not individualistic. It's communal. Calvin writes here, and he says this, and I love how he words this. He says, this phrase, oh, come, let us, or let us come, means let us make haste or let us run, stating that this calls us, he says, to speed into the presence of Yahweh together. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is intending when he tells us in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together. He is saying in his own way, oh, come, let us stir up one another. Oh, come, let us encourage one another to do love and good works and not neglect to meet together. Because without the habit and without the practice of gathering in person together, we cannot consider how to stir up one another to love and to do good works. And because Yahweh is a God who lives always and forever within the community of the Trinity, our faith has been designed by the eternal purposes of the Trinity to be a communal faith. And then there's a second meditative aspect to this phrase, let us come or come let us, that is a call for the whole church. So not just us as Christ community, as a covenant community of faith here on North Parkway, but rather as the entire church. There is a call for the entire universal church to prioritize the attributes and the characteristics of Yahweh that he then lists through these first seven and a half verses. We are to prioritize them as the focus and direction of our worship of who Yahweh is. And we'll unpack those in a moment. But there's a second repeated phrase just in verses 1 and 2 that you may have picked up on. And I will reread the first two verses now to see if you pick up on it. And then I'll tell you what it is. So here's what the psalmist says. He says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So twice here he repeats this phrase, joyful noise. And this phrase, as you noticed as we just read again, builds upon the communal focus of the psalm. So as the covenant community, we are called together to make a joyful noise to Yahweh. And so what this phrase emphasizes is really an exceeding joy as we are within the presence of Yahweh God when we are together as his bride. And so what this does, so just drawing our attention back to Psalm 121 from last week that we looked at together, this joyful noise is an exceeding joy of rest, of a posture of rest in the presence of God. And of which Yahweh actually proclaims at the very end of this psalm, Those who are in open rebellion against him are refused a posture of this rest and confidence in Yahweh's presence. Interestingly, one one commentator I read wrote that he doesn't really care for the way we translate this in English because he just says, he says, our English just does not do a good job. I do think the New American Standard does better than the ESV, and I know a few folks in the room have that translation. But he says that our English translations are, frankly, they're just too calm. 
with this phrase, joyful noise. They're too peaceful, right? Basically, what he's saying is that this goes against, especially as Protestants, our, our Puritan heritage, right? We, we like calm and peace and, and reverence. We don't want exuberant joy, right? We want to be quiet and sit still and pay attention. But he says, he says this, this phrase, joyful noise, is not a stoic phrase, and it's not a somber invitation. And while there are times in which those moods in worship are appropriate, this particular invitation is not one of those times. This is a loud, enthusiastic, shouting, yelling, joyful spirit of worship and praise in Yahweh God. Calvin, just returning to his quote, I'll read the first half again, and then I love the way he finishes it. He says, This calls upon us as the church together to speed into the presence of Yahweh. And he says it's because such an admonition is needed, considering how naturally backwards we are when we are called by God to praise him and give thanksgiving to him. Calvin was never one to mince words. And he's basically saying when we are invited to worship God in his presence together, we are to do so with enthusiastic, spirit-filled joy. And so these two repetitions now, right? So this idea of joyful, enthusiastic noise and this aspect of coming in together as the covenant community, this let us come or come let us. These two repetitions are really important as we meditate on this psalm, as we think about it, as we read through it over the next week, particularly as we start to break down these words and phrases and the structure of the psalm. And so again, I, I, I kind of gave you an idea in your bulletin where this natural break is. I want to use those two natural breaks in Psalm 95. Again, there's a break right before that line, today if you hear his voice. We're going to go from the beginning to there, and that's the first break. But we see in these two breaks that the psalmist, as well as Yahweh himself, are really giving us two invitations. He's, he's inviting us to do two different things in this psalm, but they go together. So in verses 1 through really the first part of verse 7, because verse 7 is structured oddly in the way we have our verses laid out. So verses 1 through the first part of verse 7, we see there is an invitation given for us to praise and to worship Yahweh for his work. And then in the rest of the psalm, because of the work of the Lord God, we are invited to persevere in obedience to him. So let's consider this invitation to worship and to praise God for his work. And there are three works that the psalmist actually mentions in these first six and a half, seven verses. First, in the first two verses, and I'll read them again. Not only do we have these multiple repetitions, but we're also invited to praise Yahweh for his work of salvation. So again, here's what he says. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful, loud, yelling, enthusiastic noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So again, the psalmist, what he is doing is he, he is inviting us as a community to make haste, not to a regional God or to a household God or to an idol set up in the high places like the people of the land around the ancient Israelites, but he's inviting us to make haste to praise Yahweh, which again, as we saw last week, is God's covenant name. As we progress through the rest of the psalm, you'll notice how everything is dependent upon Yahweh's covenantal nature with us as his people. And so the covenant community, meaning us as well as the entire church, we are invited to come and to praise Yahweh. 
But this time, he is not simply, as we read last week in Psalm 121, he is not only our help from the hills, but now we are invited to come together and to praise Yahweh, who is the rock of our salvation. He is our God, as we read last week, who defends us. He is our God who defends our going out and our coming in. He is the one who keeps us and does not sleep and does not slumber and who delivers us from this time forth and forevermore. He is the rock of our deliverance and our salvation. But then in verse 2, just continuing with this theme of, of worshiping him or giving him praise for his work of salvation, part of this praise includes thanksgiving. So as we're giving this loud, enthusiastic, screaming praise in the presence of God, we're giving him thanks. Our praise and thanksgiving is to be a joyful noise, is to be enthusiastic and spirit-filled praise. And so while all that said, though, while decibel level does not and should not define the sincerity of our praise of God, these verses do actually beg us to ask a question, which is, If we are truly reflecting on how God has worked out our salvation through Christ before the foundations of the world, then why aren't we more enthusiastic about it? So as we meditate on this psalm, let us together loudly come into the presence of God with both praise and thanksgiving. And let us together make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But then in verses 3 through 6, we see a second work. This will pick up, for the Lord is a great God. What we see here is we are invited to both praise and worship Yahweh for his sovereignty. Now, we unpacked this some last week, but listen to how the psalmist writes it here. He says, for the Lord, for Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So again, notice this is not to some regional god or household god or an idol set up in the high places. This is praise to Yahweh, who is a great God, because he is sovereign over all of creation. And as he lists here, within Yahweh's hands are the depths of the earth. Within his hands are the heights of the mountains. Within his hands are the seas and all that are in them. And by his hands, he even formed the dry land. And because Yahweh has made everything... He is not only God over all of creation, he is also the great king above all gods. So everything belongs to Yahweh by his creative decree. Creation and dominion are his and his alone. And we are to offer Yahweh praise simply because he is creator and he is sovereign. But then he changes words here in verse 6. He moves from praise to worship. So we're not only to praise Yahweh because he is sovereign, but we are to worship Yahweh because he is not only creator of everything, but our maker as well. Again, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So notice again, he mentions posture here. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. This keeps really with the communal focus of this psalm because this worship is directed toward Yahweh who is maker of heaven and earth, but also maker of us as his covenant people. So as his covenant people, we come together and worship him. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter seven, he says, for you are a people holy to Yahweh, your God 
For Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is a communal posture of worship and praise. And so you can see already how God has not only created us as his covenant people, but really he's now preparing the way for those who reject his covenant later in the rest of the psalm. And so then finally, in the first part of verse 7, we are invited to worship Yahweh, speaking of his covenant, for his covenanting work with us. We read this, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Right? This is communal language. This is language of a people who know that not only do they belong to Yahweh, but that he belongs to them. God tells, tells us in Jeremiah, he says, You shall be my people, and I will be your God. We are his people, and he is our God. He is our maker. Because in his sovereignty, he is our shepherd, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. And as Jesus tells us in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And so now that we have been invited to worship and to praise Yahweh for his work, the psalm now actually, the voices change a little bit here. And it changes while we understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now we actually see it somewhat switches from the psalmist to Yahweh actually speaking to us in the rest of this psalm. And Yahweh himself, through a warning, invites us to persevere in obedience both to him and to his covenant. Really, if, if you wanted to sum up this final section with, with a phrase, it, I think it would be this. Don't rebel against God. Right? <laughs> Don't be disobedient. Right? That is not wise. So read with me again the second half. Here's what he says, beginning at today. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For, for 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is one of those when I was working on it, you're just thinking, this is a, this is a section well, you want to say, we got to buckle up, right? Because this is not something that we like to hear, right? These are hard words, right? Because let's be frank. Words about Yahweh's wrath and about Yahweh's judgment are not words that we like to talk about. We don't like to hear them. Our culture doesn't like to hear them. Many who even claim faith in Christ don't want to hear them. They only want to hear, and we only want to hear, if we're just being honest. We only want to hear that God is both love and accepting and desires us to, as the old hymn says, come as you are. Right? And God does love us, and he is love, and God is accepting, and God does desire us, but only through Christ Jesus. Because God does not leave us as we are. So by the indwelling spirit of God, we are made more into the image of Christ Jesus. This is why the second half of this psalm is so essential and important for every church and for every Christian. Because we need to grasp that we are to persevere in obedience to Yahweh by faith in Christ as we are empowered by the spirit. 
And so the reason we don't like to hear about the judgment of Yahweh or even God's rejection, as we see here in these last two verses, is because, as he tells us at the end of verse 7 and end of verse 8, it's because our hearts have been hardened and our relationship with God has been damaged, not by him, but by our own apathy and by our own disobedience. So notice again how he says this in verses 7 and 8. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. He says, don't harden your hearts. The Hebrew word here for harden can also mean don't make your heart heavy or don't make your heart difficult. One of the fathers writes here and he, he warns us. He says that the hardening of the heart displays the danger of delaying repentance. And he writes this. He says, no one should continue in sin for the hope of the mercy of God in the same way that no one wishes to be ill or sick because of the hope of future health. Meaning, when we hear the call to repent and obedient, be obedient, just like we're reading here in Psalm 95, we are not to delay by hardening our hearts or making our hearts difficult just for the hope that one day God will continue to be merciful. But you notice here, this is interesting, in verse 7 and 8, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This, these yous, these are plural pronouns. These are not singular pronouns. Stressing to us that, once again, this is a communal call to repentance. Today, if you, church, congregation, assembly, universal church, today, if you hear his voice... This is not a warning to the individual. This is a warning to the whole covenant community. And so this actually keeps the entirety of the entire psalm communal, urging us individually to work together, to call one another to perseverance, to call one another for the purpose of obedience and repentance. And then, as if to add icing to the cake, for those that like icing, for those that don't, and this actually is a lot more helpful, God then issues a warning by reminding us of events from covenant history in verses 8 and 9. He says this, Again, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Meribah and Massa are interesting words. And really, they're, they're places that we read about in Exodus and in Numbers. They're names of locations based upon what happened at, the, at those locations. Meribah means strife or controversy. Personally, I like the Septuagint here better. It, it calls this word rebellion, which is exactly what happens at Meribah. But Massa means testing. So in the Septuagint, it actually reads this way. It says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as on the day of testing in the wilderness. I think that's a better translation. Because these places come to symbolize an entire generation of rebellious Israelites who were constantly testing Yahweh by their actions and by hardening their hearts or making their hearts difficult. Even though, as he says, just even in these couple of verses, even though they had witnessed his mighty works in Egypt and the plagues and their deliverance, imparting the Red Sea, even in the wilderness at this point of providing food from heaven. They still grumbled against Moses and against God, and they complained, and they challenged him, 
And they always and constantly desire to return to their place of enslavement and bondage. This is exactly what we do every time we sin and embrace our old Adam. We reject him, and we reject his care, and we reject his covenant. Interestingly, I read this this week. I sent this to the elders. I don't know how much this really matters. I just thought it was interesting. Barna Group, which is a a research group, came out with a report this week that stated that only 4%, this is post-COVID-19, and the lockdowns and isolation. So keep that context in mind. After the lockdowns, only 4% of Americans hold to an orthodox biblical worldview. This includes people who claim faith in Jesus. Meaning that of the people that they surveyed, only 4% hold to a biblical understanding of God, the Trinity, Christ, salvation, ethics, sexuality, gender, and marriage. After, after three years of neglecting the gathering of the covenant community in order to be stirred up to love and to good works. So this tells us something very important, right? That not only does gathering in person for worship matter for the health of the individual Christian, but it matters, matters for the church. And so here's a warning in how it relates, I think, to our psalm. As the church, we have been asleep we have been sleeping and we have not been calling one another to repentance or to faith or to follow after the pattern of life that God has called us to in Christ Jesus. We have been sleeping and we have not been listening to the voice of Yahweh. We have allowed our hearts to become hardened just like at Meribah in the rebellion. And through our own apathy, we are approving of the hardening of the hearts of those who claim faith in Jesus, but do not hold to how Jesus has revealed himself and how God has revealed himself in his word. And so if one of the disciplines of Lent is repentance, then it is time for us to wake up and to repent during our own testing in the wilderness of the season of Lent. We read this this morning in Sunday school, and I wrote it out in the margins of my notes because I think it's important. In Revelation 3, to the church in Sardis, we read this starting in verse 2. Christ says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's time to wake up. Because, as we see in verses 10 and 11, as we come to the end of the psalm, the spirit of disobedience and rebellion for those who rebelled This leads to the result of not entering into the rest of Yahweh. Again, he says, they are a people who go astray in my hearts. I loathed that generation for 40 years because they are a people who go astray in their hearts and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These words of wrath and loathed, they signal for us more than just a random moment of anger. This is not just a burst of anger. Yahweh was disturbed by their constant rejection of him 
and their constant rebellion against him. So much so that he loathed them. I looked this up in Hebrew because I'm just, I was just curious. This word is almost better defined as disgusted instead of loathed. Now, loathed, we understand a, an, almost an exceeding hate. But really, there's just this disgusted aspect behind this word. God was disgusted by their rebellion. He's disgusted by our rejection of him, of our sin. Those who rebelled... As we read here, they could not and never did enter into the promised rest of Yahweh's presence and care. They didn't enter into the promised land because they had rejected him during their time of testing in the wilderness. They rejected his presence. They rejected his care. Essentially, they made themselves foreigners to Yahweh. They made themselves foreigners and aliens to his covenant. Chrysostom writes here, he says, For 40 years God showed mercy. He showed them signs and proof of his care, of his deliverance, of his love, his loyalty, only to be rejected by them at every single turn. He goes on and he says, God's statement here is not a statement of one who has given up, but rather from a people who have given up on him. God offered them rest in his presence, and for those who rebelled, they rejected his presence. So as part of the idea of Lectio Divina, we obviously look at Scripture Christologically. So how do we approach the Scripture Christologically? Remember, Psalm 95 offers us two invitations, an invitation to praise and worship God for his work, but also to persevere in obedience to him. So Christologically, we can actually combine these two invitations for the purpose of salvation or for the purpose of meditation and application. And it's found actually right in the middle of the psalm. And I did not skip this part of verse 7 unintentionally. So in verse 7, what I, would, I would label verse 7b, which is that phrase, today, it's this. Today, if you hear his voice, here's how we start to Christologically connect this. There's multiple ways, but this is how I'm doing it today. So we ask this question, today, if you hear his voice, are we listening for the voice of God? And if we are, how do we know that we have heard Yahweh's voice? We have heard Yahweh's voice only by listening to Christ and by listening to his spirit. Again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. It is to Yahweh's voice that we must listen because he is our shepherd and we are the sheep. Again, Jesus tells us in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and they will listen to my voice. Again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion during the day of testing in the wilderness. What Yahweh is doing here is he's warning us against that same spirit of disobedience and against a similar spirit of disbelief, which demands constant proof and constant signs of the provision and care and love of Yahweh. Paul adds to this warning in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud And all passed through the sea, but all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit, excuse me, spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now as these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So we are not to put God to the test and to demand proof from him. 
when he has already given us proof in the resurrection of Christ Jesus, as well as in the indwelling spirit and in the gathered bride of his church, as well as his covenant of grace and mercy. God has given us proof. Because as we read here again, just this verse one more time, in Christ we find the complete rest of Yahweh. Today, he says, if you hear his voice. This word today signals for us a new era, as well as a new beginning, both for the covenant community, but even for those who have not professed faith in Christ. Because today is a new day. Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations 3, he says, Yahweh's mercies are new every morning and his steadfast or his covenant love never ends. Today is the new day in a new era because, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the favorable time and today is the day of salvation. Today we are to make enthusiastic praise to God and enter into his presence with thanksgiving and worship. Because it is only through Christ as the rock of our salvation that we enter into the Sabbath rest of Yahweh. The author of Hebrews gets to this really well, and I promise I'm done. He says this in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 4. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning the conquest generation, if Joshua had been able to give them rest in the promised land, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Joshua could not succeed in providing rest for God's people in the promised land because Joshua and the land were merely a shadow of the greater substance of the things to come in Christ. But in Christ, Yahweh's rest is complete. And it is still being offered today because today is the day of salvation. As as the author of Hebrews continues, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, O come, let us sing to the Lord and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Amen. Amen.